All right, Zig coming in on the top. Today on the show, we have Ramona Jan and Nicholas West, also known as Nick North, of the Comatines. The Comatines were a groundbreaking New York City synth punk band from 1979. They would play all over the CBGB scene, sharing stages, sharing the stage with Suicide and the Ramones and Talking Heads. Um, the band was started with Ramona and Nick as a two-piece, but then grew into a into a trio. Nick and Ramona met at their shared job at Media Sound. Ramona was working as an engineer, and Nick was working at the desk. Right. And, like, it's crazy the stories, especially the, 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 these guys share about the people that were around the studio they are working on. So you got someone that's got in-depth experience of the underground scene and the mainstream scene. But the Comatines are putting out a 12-inch of previously unreleased material, uh, Danger Zone and Elizabeth's Lover, off Left for Dead Records. And we are going to listen to Danger Zone by the Comatines. Danger Zone, The Comatines, available now on Left 4 Dead Records. Um, yeah, so this conversation was really cool. It's also part two, uh, but we're playing it first. I know it's confusing. But previously, before this conversation with Nick and Ramona, I talked with Ramona, and we get more into her career after uh, The Comatines and kind of like the songwriting process and 
uh, going down that type of rabbit hole, which is familiar to this channel, and also with her perspective as an audio engineer working with some of the biggest names in the business. I'm excited to share this conversation with you. I'm excited for another year. Uh, we're looking at 2024 now, and uh, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. We're starting off with the Comatines. It's going to rock. Before we get to the conversation, last thing, if you can like, rate, review, subscribe to the podcast and any of the podcast platforms, it helps me keep talking to cool guests and sharing their insights with you. Now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Nick and Ramona. So, uh, me and Ramona chatted before and um, really got into her kind of story with the Comatines. So I kind of wanted to pick up with your story and kind of get the crossover. So, Nick, if you could tell me, like, um, as far as your musical journey, how did that start? Completely from the beginning or uh, just with her? Well, let's let's get a little bit that kind of I imagine some of it leads into where you you were working at the studio as well, right? I was working at the studio. I was a receptionist. I was working the night shift from six in the evening to two a.m. And uh, after a while, I met Ramona. Came up out of a stairway. I'd never seen her before, and uh, we chatted a little bit. And every time she came by my desk, we, we chatted a little bit. And then we started to talk about bands and because there were a lot of bands going through that studio. And she said, why don't we try to make a band? Because I had been in bands. I'd already played CBGBs and Maxes in other bands. And uh, I said, okay, let's do it. And uh, brought a bass guitar over to her, her apartment. She had a guitar and we had a rhythm box. And we, we just started to play. And we our first song was a song called My Girl, which is by The Temptations. And uh, we played that with a kind of a bossa nova beat. We thought, wow, this, this is fun. We could do this. Uh, we, we, we were kind of good right away. Ramona, hey, Nick, I just wanted to know, Nick, how did you get the job at Media Sound? Because I know how I got mine, but how did you get yours? That's a really great question. I haven't the slightest idea. Somebody knew Susan. Somebody that I knew knew Susan. And Susan was the manager of the studio. And um, I, I got this job. I, I, have, I have no memory of how I got the job. None. Do you even remember being interviewed? No. Nope. Yes, I remember Susan interviewing me. You do? What did she ask you? She said, why do you want to work here? And I <laughs> said, I said, because I'm a musician and I, I want to be close to the, the music scene. And, um, you know, I, I made sure that I was reasonably dressed and uh, clean, clean myself up for this interview. I was very nervous. And, and so, but Susan put me at ease right away. She was very nice. And she said, all right, well, we, we usually start everyone here at, 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 at the reception desk. And you're going to get the worst job at the reception desk. That was a lie. Because they, no, you don't get started at the reception desk. That was such a lie. Where do you get started? Shipping, right? If you wanted to be an engineer, you had to start in shipping. You had I, to I, guess, I guess I was personable or something. I don't know. Never worked the receptionist desk. I never worked it. So, I mean, so Dave, Dave, let me tell you, the first the first day I was working there, I got fired. 
The yeah. very three hours of yeah. starting the job. I got fired because I misdirected a call to a, a studio that some other studio should have gotten the call. I misdirected the call. Suddenly, the studio manager came stomping down the stairs and she pointed to the door and she said, out, out. This is not working out. And, um, so Susan uh, saved my job again. Yeah. I well, went up to her. I said, I'm leaving. She said, why are you leaving? I said, well, Vivian just fired me. She said, no, that's not possible. I said, yep. She gave me the job back. And, and that's how I met Ramona. Thank goodness I got that job back. Um, and I'm, I have to uh, mention that um, it was only when receptionists got fired by Vivian Hothead that a shipping department person or an assistant engineer would sit in that spot. Because <laughs> I, I had to teach Patty Scalfa, Mrs. Springsteen, how to work the board because she would have been fired so fast. You know, it was kind of complicated. This this telephone board had like 40 buttons on it. Yeah. It wasn't complicated at all. Did you know what I did before I came to New York City? I worked a switchboard with 400 incoming calls. Okay, then why weren't you doing reception then instead of me? It's easy for me. I needed a, a board with 400 buttons on it. That's what I needed. <laughs> anyway, that, that's how we met. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> I always loved the receptionists. I loved just just hanging out at the reception. We all did. And we all got in trouble for it. But we used to just gather around the front desk because, I don't know, the receptionists were always cool people to talk to. So, Dave, Media Sound was an old church. And the entranceway had pews lined up on both sides of the entrance. And people would just come up from sessions and sit on these pews and chat with the receptionists with each other and that, that was the social scene of this, this studio and we weren't allowed to do that as as engineers i wasn't allowed to sit on the pew or hang out with the receptionist so you had to keep your ears open in case somebody was coming down the stairs to like run into a, into a studio to pretend like you were doing something so eventually i became a, a, a disc mastering engineer i became a disc cutter okay i okay. i moved from reception into the disc cutting room and that gave me a big leg up because I was able to take the recordings that we that Ramona and I were making and cut them onto discs and then distribute these records to the clubs. And they put them on the jukeboxes in the clubs. So we were getting in there, you know, people were listening to our music in clubs by then. Awesome. Was it's interesting, like to be around the hub of a thing like that, and to be like involved with it is like two separate things. But you guys kind of got like the best of like the both worlds, or as far as like the scenes concerned, in a way that like be able to like see how like the kind of higher end of stuff is made and be making it your own. Um, the scene was amazing. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we we were we were really at the, at the exact center of the entire thing. You know, the Ramones would come in, the Talking Heads would come in, Brian Eno would come in, and Ramona even worked with Frank Sinatra. Really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I, we didn't talk about that last time. How'd that go? <laughs> yeah, I have pictures of it, and, and it's just me and Frank and a, and a, and a bunch of other, like the uh, producer, like like having a listen, uh, a listen where, where you would listen back. 
And like, I'm standing next to Frank and I've got like my hand to my chin, like I'm really listening. <laughs> and I think we should do another take. <laughs> but I'm right there with them. <laughs> wow. That's so cool. <laughs> That's awesome. It was, it was my everyday job. So maybe the reason I don't mention all these people is because every day there was somebody hugely famous there. Yeah. Barry Manlow with Nile Rogers. Gladys Knight. Yeah, every every single day. Wow. James. Yeah. Yeah, it was every day. It was like, but you see, I wasn't, they were has-beens to me. I wasn't a, a music listener, a music aficionado. I was I was writing my own music. I was in a band. I felt like one of them. I'm like, sure, I should be up here listening to his take and deciding what should go on. Of course, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I never thought of myself as lesser than them. <laughs> Always equal. In fact, when I grew up, um, my friend was a real music fan and she would buy all the magazines to get the records and she'd play them for me and she'd sing with them. And I never once felt like a fan. I always felt like I'm going to meet these people someday. I'm, I'm one of them. That's how I always felt. And it's true. I mean, I went to see New York Dolls and I was like, and I ended up singing with David Johansson yeah. for two years. Yeah. For two years. And, um, and warming up for him and everything. So I was like, uh, I always thought I'm just one of you guys. I never once was a fan of anyone's. Hmm. I saw the flaws and everyone's stuff. And <laughs> was it well being in in the studio, like being in like the lab as it's getting kind of made? I, I imagine a lot of the flaws kind of come out. You're like, oh well, blah blah blah. I took a lot of vocal takes on that one. You're hearing the cream of the crop here, and I gotta imagine like seeing that really makes it more achievable in a way. You have no idea the pressure that that was in those studios during the making of these albums. It was ex incredibly expensive. Everyone was doing, you know, drugs. <laughs> they would work five days on a hi-hat sound. You know, it was just unbelievable yeah. what was going on there. And, and the pressure, I, that's why I didn't become an engineer. I couldn't take the, because I thought firsthand up close, just seemed like these people were miserable most of the time. I there were two there were two um what I would say two generations of engineers. There were those that came from like TV and and they were real they were geeks before there was a word the geek and they were geeks and they were the ones who taught us which was the next generation which were rock stars. We were personalities. We were like I'm not reading that book. I'm not learning about schematics. We we had no interest so what we did was we developed personality and that would make a client want to work with you depending on your personality. And uh, the more personality you had, the less you needed to know. <laughs> for example, Dave, Dave uh, in that studio, all the music for Sesame Street was recorded. Yeah. And the engineer for Sesame Street, a guy named Fred Christie, was a, a big, very normal guy who lived in the suburbs and he was like the dad of the place. Yeah. And he taught us all of all of us kids yeah. the basics of how to roll up a mic cord and how to, you know, how to do these very basic things, how to edit tape. But he did all the, the orchestral stuff, the Sesame Street stuff, all the adult stuff. And 
we worked on all the crazy, you know, us crazy kids stuff. Our bosses were the were the guys that organized the Woodstock Festival. Yeah. Oh, man. yeah. So. It's in, it's so it's interesting, like kind of being around all this, and then being like, we're going to do our own thing, and then like, so when you guys hit it off and like start working on music and start jamming on my girl, like, what what kind of was it? Just the feeling of everything coming together? Was it was it the similar experience? What kind of like clicked that made that feeling like, hey, we're on to something? Well, for me. Um... I had never played in a band before or even with anyone. <laughs> Actually, I can't. I did play in my church folk mass, and I only played my own songs because I was incapable of learning anybody else's songs. I remember trying to learn, listen to the music by the Doobie Brothers. I gave it a few times, like five hours, and I was like, I, I don't know what's going on here. So I need to write songs. <laughs> and um, it's funny because decades later, not too long ago, I decided I'm going to learn that song. And I was able to get the rhythm on the guitar and to do it. And I was like, oh, I guess I progressed as a musician. <laughs> but I wasn't really able to do it like uh, a musician because I'm really a songwriter. So I was writing songs for my folk mass, my church at the Catholic Church. And my very first song that I wrote was called And She Looked Down. It was about the Virgin Mary looking down on all of us. And I'm <laughs> making judgment. You should probably look it up. But we sang it in church. So that was my only time ever really playing with other musicians, but they weren't good. So when I first played with Nick, it was like, I, I, I'll just remember when he played the bass. I mean, it was like, how did he do that? He was like, he just picked up the bass and he played the part. And I was like, how did you do that? Yeah, I mean, and I don't think he rehearsed it or anything like that. He just picked it up by ear or however he did things. And I was so happy because then I had like a foundation for the songs I had written, been writing since I was 15. I was like, I came, I came to New York with a list of them, a set list. I was ready, ready to get on stage. I just didn't know how. I just was like, okay, I got Nick now. He can do everything. He can sing. He can play an instrument. That's all I need. Don't even need a drummer. We'll just get a box for that. We don't want another personality in this well, thing. The, the, the thing is, Dave, is that when we started to play together, I instantly noticed that neither of us challenged what the other one was doing. He was playing her part. I was playing my part. None of us, neither of us said, hey, you know what? Don't play that. Play this. That doesn't sound. We just we just played. And neither of us challenged each other to play something different. So we immediately felt comfortable and, and validated and relaxed. And uh, we just let it go where it was going to go without without any kind of friction. Friction. So, Nick, you never told me what to play on the guitar? I don't I don't remember ever telling you what to play. I don't think so. I don't think you did. And if you if you ask me sometimes, does that sound good? I said, well, maybe you should do a little. But I, I would never I never started off by telling you what to play. No. Yeah. And because my concept and I don't think I ever verbalized it back then of playing the guitar since I really didn't. I it was just to um, make a wall of noise. You can hear that danger zone. I had to fill up the space. And that, and in a certain frequency, 
And that was my job. I felt I, however I could make that happen, you know. And that you can see that very, you can hear that on Danger Zone very clearly. Well, you were a very good rhythm guitarist. You had good, good, solid rhythm, you know, uh, besides your wall of sound. Yeah, 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 I did because I think we played with the rhythm box for so long, you know. And playing with the rhythm, rhythm box is no different than playing with a metronome. Yeah. So we had to get our shit together right away because we had no drummer and, you know, yeah. it was relentless. That's kind of a great exercise, though, as far as like playing in time and playing together, you know, and uh, and convenient one, too. So do you guys recall the first song of your own that you remember working on? Yes, it was, called, it was a song by Ramona. It was called Dial Tone. Yeah, it was about, yeah, which yeah, it's about making a telephone call, which is so different now today. And it's like how you like talking on the telephone. But however, no one wants to talk on the telephone anymore. They want to text. But the lyrics were like, "I like talking, talking on the telephone. When I'm when I'm talking on the phone, I don't have to be alone." <laughs> yeah. that. Nick sang it, and it's such not a male thing to sing, really. Yeah, but he did. <laughs> he sang it. That recording still exists, and we'd like to release that one day. It's it's a very strange, extremely simple recording. Where did you guys do that in studio, or did you just do that? that we did it in a studio. We yeah. did it in a a small, what they used to call a jingle studio. And jingles were you know small musical segments they would use for. T commercial radio commercials and TV commercials. So it was a tiny little studio, one microphone, and we did it in there. Uh, Ramona had a friend that had a, that ran that kind of studio. I think it was a four-track recording. <laughs> with the uh, with the beatbox with the with the beatbox, yeah. Gotcha. gotcha. That's awesome. So from set on Boston over as usual. <laughs> <laughs> what are our favorites besides Rock One and Rock Two and Surfer? I think those are the only ones we used. And there was there was tango, but we couldn't figure that one out. Tango's kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we were we were one of t only two two bands in New York City using a beatbox at the time. There was us, and there was a band called Suicide that also used a beatbox. They were even simpler than we were because they just had a beatbox and a one note synthesizer, and that's that was their all their instrumentation. Did you guys so I so I imagine after after getting a couple of these tunes together like Sharon Bills was that who you were playing with? We did we did we did a show with them yes we did. Now and we sorry. couldn't have been more opposite of them. Uh, it was a, a, to me like the wrong billing. Do you know Suicide? Yeah yeah I yeah mean, they're pretty intense. <laughs> like they're great. Yeah they're pretty intense. Yeah he 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 writhed around the stage like a like a a serpent you know i mean <laughs> it was so different from us he he came he came up to me before we did the show uh alan vega the singer of suicide he, he wanted me to drop acid with him before the show <laughs> oh, no. I, I, I politely declined to, to do this um how'd their show go then <laughs> <laughs> like that'd be crazy. Oh, I, they were they were incredible. They yeah. were incredible. Yeah. They were great. Was it uh so okay, so you guys start playing out, is it CBGB's that you start hitting up or did you start at Max's? I think we started at Max's. 
Well, Ramona, you may remember this better than me. Did we do our first show? Our first, our first show after Irving Plaza it was CBGB. Oh, CBGB. Because you know they were kind of rivals, and if you were going to be a Max's band, then CBGB's wasn't so interested in you, vice versa. But we um, we got a call. I I must have it was cassettes in those days. I dropped off a cassette. And I, you know, in those days, you didn't even have an answering machine. I didn't. And and then somebody said, you got to get an answering machine. And I did that day. And I said, this is ridiculous. Everyone calls back. But I put it on, I put it up and it was blinking when I got home. I was like, whoa, somebody called. And it was Hilly Crystal. He wanted to book us. And he had listened to the tape. And he's like, I listened to your tape. And I'd like to book you on Thursday at 2 a.m. That was how Hilly talked. And, <laughs> and he was never enthusiastic, nothing. But we did. We, that was our first the gig. It was, it was at CBGB's. And then I think Max's got, would then book you. If you got into CBGB's, you were automatic in to Max's. But I was dating the lead guitar player in the Rousers, and they were a Max's band. And so, because uh, that guy loved rockabilly and they kind of, you know, were in that genre, 50s rockabilly. And so I was the girlfriend who had to book my band, you know. That's awesome. Was it, did you, it, was there like a, I guess, play, from kind of bouncing from one to another, did you guys notice a different reaction to the comatines in either place? Or did it, was it kind of like the bill really made the difference? The reaction we got most of the time was complete silence. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. We did our show, you know, it was like at 500 miles an hour. It was like the Ramones. It was like the Ramones, a play school Ramones is what it was like. And, you know, the rhythm box was really turned up high, the, the, the tempo. And we did our entire set in like half an hour. And, uh, and everyone was staring at us with with their mouth half open, and then we then we left. <laughs> that, that was our experience on the stage. Yeah. There was definitely no encores. That's for sure. That kind of seems to be how people describe hearing bands there for the first time, though. That kind of seems to be the normal, yeah. Yes, because <laughs> the stuff you heard in those clubs was so fucking weird. But uh, but it, it was just a great scene. I mean, there were things there you couldn't believe that were on a stage, but it, were, it was just amazing. And, um, you know, we, we were just at home in these places, especially Max's. I, I found I felt very at home there. What was some of the, I guess, the most kind of profound things you recall seeing at either CBGB's or uh, Max's? Well, suicide was definitely one of them. Uh, James James Chance and the Contortions was another one, which I ended up working with him after a while, with James. And uh, it was an incredibly insane act called Von Elmo. I don't know if you remember him, Ramona. Who? Von Elmo. Do you remember Von Elmo? Not at all. Oh, God. Well, I'm, we won't go into that now, but it was like... Dressed in, in like he dressed in tinfoil, and he just tinfoil and sunglasses, and he just screamed into a microphone for half an hour. Do I, 
What? Did I go to that gig with you? You might. You must have seen that with me. Yeah. Okay. Um, the other thing about Memphis is you could uh, meet just anyone there. I mean, I, I did I tell you I met Brian Eno there the night before I was going to work with him, and he snubbed me. Yeah, we did talk about that. <laughs> so we won't talk about that again. But uh, the other person I met worked for John Lennon. His name was um, something. His last name was Seaman, I remember, but I forget. Oh, Fred Seaman. Fred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they were all junkies then. So was he. But Fred was uh, a junkie, to... really? Oh, God, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I hung out with him, and that was during uh, another band, my probably Disney and the Romalars. Um, you know, that kind of hung out with him because they, I mean, if they find out you're not into doing heroin, they don't want to hang out. Nick and I did do drugs, which which had separated us with most of the other bands. Which was smart. It seemed like a lot of you guys had gigs. You had jobs. Well, it seemed like it seemed like a lot of those guys were in it in order to do drugs, mm. not in order to play music, but in order to find other people to do drugs with. Mm. And we weren't part of that at, at all. Not even close. Hold on a second. I'm just going to tell them hello. Um, okay. so, so, Dave, Dave, what is your background? Did you go to any of these clubs? Did you uh, go to? I was never lucky enough to go to any of them, but I've been um, I've been talking with a lot of people who've played there. Um, mm -hmm. like and like, so I I have a mythical sense of of these clubs, just like any anyone else who picked up on the music later, you know. That uh, right. so I was never lucky enough to go. Um, but but yeah. <laughs> so as far as my my background with those clubs, um, now one thing I want to ask because Zoom Zoom's gonna probably bump us here, um, uh, to kind of wrap it up. Because Zoom, Zoom's like it will shut down and start another one. We gotta wait like ten minutes, and it, I, I appreciate your guys' time. It's very dear, and like this is I, I dig what you guys do. I hope we supplied you with any anything that that you can use. Oh, for sure, know. for sure. I'll cut out the phone call, but <laughs> but kind of the rapid. I wanted to like like putting this out, like listening back. What's some of the takeaways? And Ramona, we kind of talked about this a little bit. Some of the takeaways about hearing these early recordings of yourselves that you've noticed. Well, I think uh, Danger Zone is so contemporary and still ahead of its time. Um, I love everything about it. I love the way Nick sang it. I love my guitar part. I love the background vocals. Just everything about it. Um, Dizzy and the Romalars is a little unfinished. Uh, I mean, the uh, Elizabeth's Lover was a little, little bit unfinished. And and I finished it later. And I listened to it recently because I was like, what did I do? I was I was more with the vocal. I was a little more cautious and different. So there's something more raw about this uh, Elizabeth's Lover. And the fact that I played like some lead guitar line in the beginning, which I remember was a last minute thing. And I had to make up, I wasn't a lead guitar player, but what the hell, you know, I wasn't a guitar player. So why not throw a lead on, right? Throw a lead on. And yeah, so that um, is a very uh, early Comatines sound. What I, what, I, what I hear is that this was a very narrow window 
on that band didn't that particular band didn't exist for very long and that and that particular sound didn't exist for very long we started with a completely different sound which was very electronic and then after that you know so it, it's a tiny little window in, in the history of the band it, it sounds uh I, I was kind of amazed that we could sound like that at all you know, after hearing it for so not hearing it for so long. Yeah, because we put our our we just put everything into it as as um Nick says balls to the wall. You know, when in those recordings we were like, this is it. We have got to be perfect. And we put right. everything we could into that. And uh and never nothing is ever perfect. Even with the you know the 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 artists who were number one. You know, I don't know if Barry Manlove thought everything was perfect that went out, but mm -hmm. for him, it was good enough, and it was it had to be finished. Well, I think that by itself is a pretty solid lesson within it to be like, as far as writing and recording, or I guess creating anything, knowing that it's never going to be a hundred percent perfect, but it's going to be as perfect as you can make it in that moment. Well, you know, working with Eno. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's such a kindred spirit to me. Working with Eno was like, we want imperfection. Let's try to get that, you know, and subtractive recording. All of that stuff was so just perfect for me to experience with somebody who was spending money in his own money, by the way, when he did music for films and music for airports, which I, I played on music for films. Um, you know, we were so lined up with how music should be because both non-musicians and just um, I loved his approach. It was so different from what I had learned at Media Sound. It was more about uh, playing with the sounds beyond trying to make it sound like something. We never made it sound like anything. It was going to be whatever it sounded like. And it didn't matter you played an instrument or not. It's just none of that mattered. You had a right to make music because you had it in your heart. And that was Eno's, uh, you know. Yeah. Well, that's huge because I got to imagine everyone else in the studio that you're working with is kind of maybe the opposite. <laughs> like, making that's such a... Do that guitar part over again. Do You know. Yeah. There was no second takes with Eno. It was, a, it was a one take thing. And if he didn't like it, it just threw it out. Hmm. It was just a one take thing. He could I, make. I, I think that records today are kind of they're they're over perfect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, over perfect. Mm -hmm. they're, they're stripped of all kind of any kind of humanity in a way. Yeah, yeah. Like, you don't know what you don't know what you're listening to really on on most records. I agree. Like with a uh, with a quantization and like auto tune and like yeah, you know, you know what I mean like. When, when it's done for an effect, you can kind of like, oh, I get it. I'm not supposed to hear that. But when it's like just kind of covering stuff up, you're like, everything fits in the grid. <laughs> like, right, exactly. And like, but you know, you know something? Um, I was going to say that back then in the early 70s, I started at media at 75. I'm just going to unplug this phone and it'll go, it'll go to my answer. Okay, so see how important I used to um, <laughs> So anyway, back, you know, people, you didn't get a record deal unless you could really sing. Right. 
And by that, I mean not punch in. You were singing love somewhere. And then with the talking heads and the Ramones, that's the sh- when the shift came. Getting record deals and um, they they were not what was considered. Nobody wanted to work with them. So it defaulted to me, the girl. Uh, exactly. Did they punch um, in a lot? Were they like as far as vocal takes go for Talking Heads or Ramones? Well, the Ramones early albums that I worked on, they played them live. They played their music down live and all of it in one or two nights. And then um, there were other musicians involved in doing their parts over. Oh, snap. <laughs> yeah, I was and the Talking Heads, um, I did a lot of David's vocals. I don't remember him punching. I don't remember if he had to punch in a lot or not. But I was involved in one Talking Heads record, the earliest one, 77, that was produced by Tony Bon Jovi and Lance Quinn, um, where they did have session musicians come in and do, redo their parts. But I don't know if they were used or not. because They were 16 track, by the way. Because Ed Stasium tells me that he mixed it and, and he did not use the session musician part. But I have to say, in my recollection, I don't think that was possible because of only 16 tracks. I think if you're replacing a bass part, you're replacing a bass part. You can't have the two, you know? Yeah, but, yeah. That's where he didn't, you, you know, so it's, it's, um, and I talked with Tony about it not too long ago. And he said, um, yeah, he had Bob Babbitt come in and redo, uh, Tina's part. Ed says, didn't use it. But, you know, it's like I remember you erase and then you go base, you know, is on the track sheet. So either I'm not remembering right or there's a cover up or Ed is. You know, I don't think Ed would cover that up, but you never know. I love Ed. I've worked with Ed a lot, and I don't see him to be at all dishonest or anything. And I probably have a bad memory of these things. Well, I mean, there's a lot a lot of people you've worked with. You know what I mean? There's a lot going in. i got got to imagine some of it. I remember Bob, I do remember being on the recording session where Bob Babbitt played her part over because I remember him commenting that she had a note in there, here and there, that was wrong. And asking Tony, should I correct that? Are you talking about Tina? Yeah. Yep. And and Tony said, yeah, correct it. Uh, but that was a little dangerous because then the artist might pick that up. Yeah. But she didn't, but I'll tell you who did. Dee Dee picked it up. Yeah. Dee Dee's part was And he picked up on that right away. And started a fit. And then, of course, the thing every engineer would say was, no, we just EQ'd it or something. You know, we'd have some technical that we changed it. And, you know, back then I wasn't really thinking to look for those kind of things, you know? Yeah. I was thinking to take a nap during the session. <laughs> like, this is going to take a while. But, all right. A book. No, I'm just thinking of <laughs> tension or anything. Was it? Well, 
you guys, thank you so much for scheduling this with me. I, I apologize for the bumps we had a little bit before this. Um, You're very welcome. Thanks for having us. Of course. And if you guys are going to put out that that other song, let's get together and chat again. Okay. Cool. It's a deal. Yo, Spike Spiegel here. You just listened to Zig of the Gig podcast. Keep riding the bebop. See you, Space Cowboy. Bang. <laughs>